1001 Books, the podcast where we read the 1001 Books the experts say you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they're really worth your time. I'm Chelsea, a lover of Harry Potter and all books that'll make me cry. And I'm Nicole, a lover of also love of Harry Potter and of every historical fiction novel I can get my hands on. So before we talk about this week's book, what have you been reading lately, Nicole? Um, well, I've been listening to an audiobook that I haven't finished yet um, called The Sun is Also a Star um, by Nicola Yoon, who I read another book by her, also an audiobook earlier this year, Everything, Everything. Oh, I liked that book So a this lot. is like her other book and it's really good and it's like a really adorable high school like romance that's very like it's just trash but I love yeah. it um but I haven't finished it yet but uh, so I don't know what the ending is but I'm enjoying it what have you been reading um when we were planning this out I said I haven't read anything but Obsidio which I'm still not done with it is a 600 page book I have been listening to an audiobook I've been listening to The Zookeeper's Wife I cannot remember the author off the top of my head Diana Ackerman or something similar to that it is a based off of a true story it's nonfiction about a told in novel format but about a woman who her and her husband ran the warsaw zoo oh i think i read this yeah during world war ii um and managed to smuggle through 300 jewish friends and families um and then eventually strangers as they became more in with the underground um through poland during world war ii and it's I've tried to listen to it a couple of times. The audio recording is not great. Um, I thought it was just me one time, my headphones or something, but it's very like poppy. Um, but I pushed weird. through half of the book, so I'm just going to finish it yeah. now. That's the funny thing about audiobooks. When I listened to Everything, Everything, the audio was obnoxious because when the boy and girl characters were talking in the prose, there was a different... Yeah, uh, they're it's the same voice doing just doing like a, a woman reader doing a male voice. But when they were communicating in like texts, they would had a different male voice actor doing the voice voice. But in this book, the sun is also a star that has alternating chapters, perspective chapters, and then they have a girl doing the girl part, a boy doing the boy part, and then a third person doing kind of the narration chapters or chapters that, that are about other characters, and it, it works way better. And I realized that I just kind of wish that audiobooks were always like a cast not just one yeah that'd be so fun I don't know if I've listened to any cast audiobooks I recently was reading some reviews of like the best audiobooks because I really like listening to them on the way to work um and on the way home and a couple on there did have casts and I marked them as to read yeah I never like curate audiobooks always just like I always just click the what's available right now and Uh it's like a book I've heard of or sometimes it's I have to only can really listen to like light not dense books on audio like young adult books or just like chick lit books even though i don't like that designation um that's the only one thing to an audio that i can like remember you know yeah I, like heavy dialogue and not a lot of description um but i never like curate what i'm gonna listen to it's just like this is the i want a book right now <laughs> and that's that's it i sometimes do that with audiobook but i've been trying to be more intentional because i realize my tbr is out of control no you just realized that now <laughs> No news there, but that when I just pick random audiobooks that aren't on my TBR, I'm not helping the problem. That's true. So this book mm. has been on my TBR for many years, and I'm now still been I'm doing that thing it. where you're like deleting one page or whatever off your TBR on Goodreads every month. Or um, I <laughs> have cleared out a decent amount of it. It's crept back up. I had it below 500. That was the goal to keep it below 500. Oh, but it's gone back, back up. up. I also, though, this month, I've been doing that thing where I, like, plan, like, 
the ABCs of reading, you know, mm-hmm. where I try and one month I'll read all 26 books, but more it's just like, I'll get these books from the library. So I have a plan. So I'm not just like looking through 500 books. So I'm trying to choose something. Um, and this month I've currently read 14 out of 26 books. Wow. That's crazy. I feel like if it wasn't, there's still like a week left. Too. I know if it wasn't about to be when we're recording this, Oh, and when you listen to it, we don't really have a buffer right now. So when you listen to this, it'll be my first week back teaching. And so if it wasn't that, I would totally like try and push through the other 12 books (laughs) just because it's exciting. But um, there's no way in hell it's going to happen. But you know, you're probably going kind of into a reading desert for a little while while you're stressed. But I I found that that having like a spreadsheet where I type in like, here's 26 books I could possibly read this month. And like, I just like doing the ABC because it's fun to have like a rule for it. Yeah. Um, is really like engaging for me and it helps me not get stuck in like all the things in the world I could read. Yeah. So funny story about TBRs. And so I said on the podcast before about how I used to never really keep one, but now I've started using the for later shelf in my Uh library. But soon I'm going to be moving and I'm going to have to use a different library system, the county one rather than the city. And well, I mean, I could continue to use the city one, but it would be like a wide yeah. one that's close to you or whatever. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I have to transfer over. You're the, to the, 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 yeah. Or just going to have to be always logging into this the first one to find it. There's a button to click on our library system. It's a one. I remember that you said that and I checked and you can see it, but I don't have a, a county card. And so I wanted to get a county card because um, I was like, oh, I'm excited. I'm closing mm-hmm. on the condo. But I realized I can't get it yet because I don't have any mail with that address. Uh, <laughs> I was like a little, little bit ahead of myself in excitement. <laughs> so I had to rein it in as if that's the most important thing for me to deal with in the is move is that important. my library situation is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be – I would be concerned. Yeah, it was just like something that I could think about right now before I have the keys, you yes. know, or just like, I, oh, I just like got a lot of energy for it. So Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that my TBR needs are rubbing off on you yeah. and that you're curating one now. You're probably yeah. curating it much more carefully than I do. I don't know. It was like, it was like basically immediately a hundred books. Ha! <laughs> and you tease me. And then I do the same thing is that I don't read off of it all the time. I read other stuff. I know. So. That's why I really like this spreadsheet. I was thinking next month uh, because it's like, you know, it's the beginning of school. So it'll be kind of a slow reading month. I was thinking about choosing like a theme. Like I'm going to only read fantasy books and I'm going to make oh, a list of like fun. 12 fantasy books to choose from. I've seen people who do that like in Women's History Month, they mm-hmm. only read women authors. And in Black History Month, they read black yeah. authors. And in queer, you know, like Pride Month, they read authors. It to work with. Queer. Yeah. That's kind of, I like that. I like that. How many, So we're recording this at the end of August. Do you know how many books you've read this year? Um, I think I'm in the 60s. Ooh. So my goal was 120. I don't know if I'm going to make it to that. I had a couple of months of slump. But I'm in the 60s, so still on track for 100 books. You? I think I'm at 77, Whoa. which is like, so I think my highest ever in a whole year is about that number. And so I'm definitely going to have my biggest reading year ever. That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, there's still four months to go. And I feel like I read a lot in the fall. I generally, October and November, I read a ton. Yeah. September's kind of like a, I'm probably only going to read the podcast books. But yeah, you're, you're basically a checked out of your all your social activities and hobbies like in the end of august and september and everything from spring break until school gets out yeah i'm a zombie (laughs) that's that would be zombie chelsea time don't talk to me um or you can talk to me but just don't expect that i'm really gonna be like with it to respond to you i feel like as we go forward on the podcast we should keep that in mind and try to create a backlog of episodes 
when you're not in zombie mode. Yeah, we had that intention, and then it didn't really work out. No. <laughs> you think it would be easier to do them this summer, but then we're also, like, traveling a lot. It's not the case. Yeah. Well. Anyway, should we talk about our, what is this, our 27th book? Yes. Let's talk about it. Book number 27. What is it? Oh, so right now we're, we read, um, it's called Down Second Avenue, and it's by the author's name is, I'm going to butcher this name, Eskia Mafalele? Mafalele? Mafalele is what uh, I pronounced a, it as. A South African author, and it was originally published um, in 1959. Uh, Chelsea, if you had to describe this book in one word, what would your word be? I said searching for my one word. Okay. I said two words. Uh, <laughs> identity development. So similar. Yeah. So what is our quick plot, Chelsea, of this book, if you're to describe it in one sentence? Um, so this book, Eskia, reflects on his um, childhood and life as a black man in South Africa as the tension around the apartheid regime grows. All right. This is our second South African novel. Yeah. And um, this novel uh, had the foreword in it was by an author we've already read. Yeah, the for person the podcast. who wrote uh, The River Between. Yeah, which was really cool. And I recognized their name. It yeah. was amazing. It made I me feel really smart. <laughs> I did, too. It's like, I recognize this person's name, and I know what they're talking about. Yes. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Because we feel like such because now we've read three books from the continent of Africa for the podcast. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, that's not that far from being like an even divide. Actually, it's not. Yeah. Out of 27. Which makes me feel good about the list. Yeah. The structure of the list. Yeah. So um, before we get into the content of our discussion, I wanted to say, so the cover of this book you'll see in our posts on social media is a looks like from a distance, a really beautiful red and black pattern, like an African looking pattern. And it's so pretty. And so I was at my parents' house and I was like, oh, mom, look at the cover of this book. And and then she looked at it from across the room and she said, God will provide. And I was like. What? What are you talking about? And in the pattern, it says God will provide in black. But I had never seen that. I'd only ever seen like a pattern of triangles. Um, and it was really confusing. And then I told Chelsea that for a recording. She had never seen that it said God yeah, will provide and, on the front. And then Jeremy just stared at us like we were idiots. Right. Because <laughs> it was so obvious to him. And the interesting thing about that is I feel like over the course of the novel, well, it's not a novel. It's an autobiography. Yeah. Um, Eskia loses his faith in God. Which is why this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I thought that I honestly did not notice it. I always, like, every time I glanced at it, I was like, there's something weird about those shapes. But I did not see letters at all. No, not at all. Not at all. So that's a fun <laughs> side note. <laughs> you know, we're real observant here. Um, So if you had to give a more in-depth plot of this novel, what would you say happened in it? Yes. So... Eskia, originally born, so it's an autobiography. Uh, he's, he's it's a memoir. He's right looking back on his and life. it's almost told in like vignettes of his life. Like the, each story yeah. feels kind of like a short story. It's very each like chapter, uh, I mean. oral history feeling yeah. to me. Um, and so he originally born named Ezekiel in the 1920s mm-hmm. in South Africa. He's black. Um, apartheid in its most terrible form does not yet exist, but laws are being added over the course of his life that it's getting stricter and stricter mm-hmm. and stricter and more terrible and um and he kind of the first part is that he's a child and he's growing up and his family and his education and then eventually his like parents like death and his and his marriage and his mm-hmm. children and his career and how um he's attempting to create a good life in south africa but at the same time that he's coming to adulthood apartheid is like digging its claws in 
um, the system. And so he has to carry a pass. And um, and then he becomes an activist. Yeah. When they want to pa- then they pass the Bantu Education Act, which is where white South Africans, the South African government said um, basically schools for black people are only going to teach them like to obey the law and to be good workers and never and never teach not teach them reading, not teach them math, not teach them that they're equal to white people in any way. And he almost becomes an activist by accident because he had the opportunities to be educated and he is a teacher. It feels like he has a lot more um, kind of awareness of what's going on faster than maybe other people do in the country. Right. And so then eventually he loses his uh, chance to teach because of his activism. No one will hire him. And Mm -hmm. then at the very end of the book, he and his family go into exile in Nigeria. Yes, I think in Nigeria um, because he just kind of I think he feels like I'm dying, like my soul is dying basically Mm -hmm. in this place. Um, And then I and and then that's kind of the end of the book. And then I and then this time, following from what I learned from our last read, I didn't read the introduction until I finished it. And then, But when I read the introduction, or maybe it was in Wikipedia, it talked about that then basically in real life, when he went into that exile, he wrote the rest of this book, and it was published. Mm-hmm. And then he was he was lived abroad for about 10 years, but he still went back to South Africa before the apartheid regime Ended. fell. Um, and his case considered like a, hu- like a huge figure in South African literature and the anti-apartheid movement. And kind of a huge figure just in African literature in general and getting, mm-hmm. um, giving a voice to African authors. Yes. So the person who wrote the, uh, I can't remember how to say her name. His name. No, the the person who wrote the foreword. That's a him. It's a him. Okay. <laughs> Noguji Wa Tiango. Tiango. Okay. Um, mentions, is a Kenyan, and mentions in the story about how um, this author, Eskia, really did a, like, was a voice for African authors and for helping them get a voice outside of their immediate countries. Right. And he started a project in Kenya, like a writer's retreat for African writers mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing that had, didn't exist prior to yeah. that. And uh. so he ended up really having some far reaching impacts, which is interesting because in his story, I guess we're getting into, I mean, we're already in spoilers, but in his story, uh, he struggles a lot with what impact he can really make Mm -hmm. and what um he can really do with his resources and he feels really like disheartened because of it it seems like in times like he that's why he feels so angry is because he's just so bitter because he can't just feels like he can't affect change within the system and that it's constantly pushing him down for no other reason than his existence but it sounds like after he wrote this novel he really did affect some major change in how accessible literature from african countries is which is really cool yeah and um and he did live to see the apartheid regime Mm -hmm. fall um though he's dead now i think (laughs) yeah 2008 i think he died yeah so so let's first talk this is our second south african novel we Mm -hmm. also read the life and times of michael k this one was much better by (laughs) michael no um, by uh john koetzi yeah something koetzi something koetzi and we hated that book and we um and that was fiction um and this book was very very different mm-hmm. though i felt like having read when we read the life and times of michael k i read a lot about south africa mm-hmm. to try to understand what was happening in that book since that was like it was that book is set in a war that is didn't even really happen like yeah. it's a, more of an alternative history type thing so th- that gave me i felt like gave me a good foundation for picking up where this book was and understanding 
how apartheid formed slowly over time in the 30s and 40s. And I think it gave, I think this gave me a lot of knowledge that I didn't have before about, because I knew apartheid in South Africa was super insidious because it had not been that bad and then it really yeah peaked in a way that most countries didn't experience that kind of peak that late um but i didn't hadn't ever read about the ban to education laws oh, yeah. mm-hmm. before um and how basically education had been provided to yeah. i mean still separate Se- separate separate yeah. they did very much did a like separate but quote unquote equal right. kind of system like the u.s but it provided to um the yeah. native African yeah. people, but you, you could only African become people. like a teacher, but at least you could go to one yeah. one college. And then, but then it was like they realized that even that much education made them not a docile group to control. And so they took that away, yeah. which that was crazy because I feel like that trajectory is kind of very different than any other one I've read about in real life. Like obviously in fiction novels or things like that that happened, but it almost felt um, not dystopian. But, like, it was just very interesting that that trajectory that I had never read about before that really happened. And I thought it was interesting because this author, because he was educated, while he was living it, he made direct comparisons to Hitler in taking mm-hmm. away rights from Jewish people yeah. to what was happening in his country. And that was really interesting to me, too, because I um, thought it was cool that since this is a real story and... He had had the opportunity to be educated. He had a really clear picture of what was actually happening to his country, even if he couldn't affect change in it. Yeah. There's a section here that I marked um, about about the schools. And um, let's see. Um, I saw in a paper, I criticized the existing so-called code of syllabuses in native primary schools. I dismissed the code as being for a race of slaves, for pupils who are not expected to change as well as be changed by the environment, but to fit themselves into it. For unsettled communities doomed to ever shift from place to one place to another without the necessity to become either a stable peasantry or urban community. I commend the text I condemned the textbooks ordered by the education department for use in African schools, a history book with several distortions meant to glorify white colonization, mm-hmm. frontier wars, the defeat of African tribes and white rules. Afrikaans grammar books, which abound with examples like the coffer has stolen a knife. That is a lazy coffer, which is like the N word in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Offense, very offensive. Um, yeah, and, and 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 so then it talks about yeah, in the very content of the book, which made me think about, you know how in the U.S. almost all textbooks are produced in Texas? Yes. And then because of that, they are more conservative than mm-hmm. other parts of the country but because that has the largest school districts who make the biggest purchases. Textbook companies cater to Texan yes. values or whatever, you know, like a general, whatever the general sense is. It's totally like this. And yeah. that, that, like, that the examples are bad. That's like, st- like that's still a problem. Like in American textbooks, like oh, every- yeah. it's only white people, or you I'm know. Reading right now, I read the first half of it years ago, but I never finished it. The lies my teacher told me. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. book which is all about the textbook industry and how we sugarcoat history over here, and it was yeah. This it's totally a form of, um, what is the word? Social propaganda. Yeah, Social propaganda. propaganda. And it was interesting here because yeah, he recognized it and he spoke out against it, and that lost him his job. Yeah. And it made him unhirable, and it almost made it so that they wouldn't let him emigrate out of their country because yeah. they viewed him as an undesirable, which was crazy. And they didn't want him to go abroad and write against mm-hmm. the regime. That's what is 
I feel like because it, it wasn't like we had a war and then this government took power. It was just like the drug government like pulled the net in tighter and tighter over a few decades, mm-hmm. you know, until it got to its most extreme form. And it was apparently so considered just normal. It was normal for their mm-hmm. for in that their society. And it's even still in the news at the time of this recording. In South Africa, they're talking about repatriating land to black people. And, like, our president is, like, saying all sorts of crazy things about what's happening to white. And it's just, like, how do white people South Africa, which is just, like, let them decide how they want to handle this on their own. It's their own country. Not our business at all. You don't have an understanding of the context, you know. Um, (laughs) But it's, like, still, (laughs) it's it's still, like, a very much a the effects of this is still very much a part of our world because if you think about it like 40 or 50 years of the vast majority of the population receiving a very terrible education it takes a long time to come back from that well and it was interesting in here because you saw them taking the land from the african people who owned it yeah and it's like oh yeah this this slum is now in a white area and you have to move and (laughs) even if you own this land we're not going to pay for it you just got to go and you in the new place we're sending you you can't buy there you can only yeah yeah and so they they put in these laws that slowly stripped all of the ownership from the African, South African, native South African people. I, was, I don't know what the vocabulary word is for, because it's just black South Africans. Yeah. Um, because there was, in apartheid, there was white people, Indians, mm-hmm. coloreds, and blacks. Yeah. yeah. And, they, mm-hmm. and it was interesting because colored and Indian... And it sounded like in his slum, there was a lot of Chinese population, too. Yeah. Um, Which I think were still classified as Indian. Like had Indian. a step above. Yeah. So they were still... They were in the middle, right? Still yeah. below the white people. That's, like, such an important part of having that kind of social control, though, is that mm-hmm. there's groups that they should be on the same side as the Africans, right? That but we, they're not. But, they, but instead, we want to hold on to the little we have, and so we're also going to be part of your oppression. It's like how poor whites in the South before the civil war they owned less they didn't own slaves they were too poor but they weren't on and they were also being oppressed in the system but they didn't see it because they they wanted to hold on to what they had yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's interesting too because this this book goes into a lot of the politics of apartheid yeah and the politics of the um i can't remember the acronyms but the two main kind of resistance groups yeah um who were fighting apartheid and trying to get back rights and how even they really disagreed because they didn't know how how much to they should be cooperating with it's kind of like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. versus the Black Panthers kind of yeah. idea is what they had in their own country yeah um and one of the things that they couldn't agree on is are the other populations like the people that are the colored population i'm using quotes because that is literally what they were defined as yeah it means Um, something different there than it means. yeah it's not like the same um and it was um and like the indian population are they our allies or are they our enemies and there was no there wasn't able to be consensus because of how insidiously this had been built that just really created this discord and inequality all the way down yeah it's sort of it's sort of terrifying mm-hmm. how like systematically you can push through one lot of time and that individual law, you might convince enough people that it's sensible, but then if you're only thinking about that one thing, you're not seeing the, how the whole government is like totalitarian um, and awful, you know, and how like it's based on people's fear. Um, I think it's yeah. terrifying white, white given fear. our world yeah. environment now. I found yeah. it particularly terrifying because 
It was all about a slow stripping of rights. Yeah. Sound, so sound familiar? <laughs> so yeah. No, yeah. and that's what's scary because it was it was such a slow stripping yeah. that the average Joe person didn't really notice it was happening. They just kind of went along the landslide until Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think it's and I feel like when you sow seeds of hatred and ignorance in your population and then you give that a couple of generations to fester, it slowly just becomes ingrained. And you could see that. Like the um, African, the black population was seen as inferior, but they were still getting some rights for two generations. But after they'd been seen for inferior anymore for so for a couple of generations, they were no longer really seen as people. And so then they could have yeah. these more rights stripped away. They were seen more as property. And yeah. so... I find that idea that we've seen this so many times in history and that this is a pattern we as humans repeat and that it still happens in modern days like it happened in World War II with Hitler and the Jewish people and anyone that he deemed not as being the master race. It happened in South Africa. Like I think the fact that, that we don't learn from those mistakes and it happens over and over is terrifying. Yeah. It also, I was reading this thing online that was talking about how, because like some African countries that had white Africans that had been mm-hmm. there for generations when they overthrew their colonial power in whatever way they did that, they kicked out the white people. Like Zimbabwe just like took all the land immediately. And, they, and then, mm-hmm. but then other countries, all in, in Southern Africa, like they, they had some sort of coexistence to this day. And, but this writer was saying that like they're a, uh, african-american writer was saying like there's no such thing as a white african white africans only exist because of oppression mm-hmm. and it made me think about that book indigo and yeah. how like dealing with the legacy of your ancestors at, as oppressors and the way you still benefit from that um and in south africa obviously there's still everybody ha- still have issues you uh-huh. know yeah but beca- they I don't know if I learned a lot in college about the after apartheid ended. They had those truth and reconciliation commissions, like where people would tell their stories and mm-hmm. hear each other. And it's considered like this huge thing in peace building that that's, yeah. they did there, like revolutionary great thing. And I'm sure it was great, but it doesn't, it just makes me like really curious what it's like, really like in South Africa now, because it's yeah. not that long ago that apartheid ended. Those people are still alive. Their beliefs their, mind, yeah. their, their beliefs about race might not really have changed. They've just been forced to act differently by out external forces, but not internally. Well, uh, and it's interesting, too, because that point about how in some countries there's not really such a thing as a white African. Um, I feel like. But some if you were, pe- yeah, if you were a white African, yeah, that's so that's, offensive to you. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. that it's it must be hard to reconcile that for those countries because the people who are black Africans have a right to that opinion. But Mm -hmm. then the people who are white Africans are there out of a legacy. Like they didn't make that choice. They just ended up there. And so then in their minds, this is their home because maybe their family has been there for 300 years at this point. Yeah. Um, and so how is that reconcilable and is it reconcilable? Yeah. And I I kind of like the slave reparations question too. Like, is it really, yeah. And can I'm, we solve yeah. those problems? I know. And I can think of like what they would say to justify it. Like it's mm-hmm. obvious, you know, um, but it's just, it's just, it's just interesting. I wish that we learned more in school about like 
things like this. Like these things are the way they are now because of these things in the past and they're still going on rather than this happened in the past and it was bad and now we're good. I feel like that's how we learn about every bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I wish this wish we learned more. I wish we taught children and teenagers, you know, yeah. more like these are the threads of history that you've been born into. <laughs> yeah. Because if we don't, we're not taught how to think about them. No. In, unless you seek it out yourself, you know? And, and yeah. co- even in college, some, but it kind of depends on what your degree is in. And it depends on who your teachers are and your yeah. professors. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that this book was really interesting. And I also, there's one point where he is talking about how he decided to leave and what his thought process was when he was deciding to leave. And I just thought it was kind of heart-wrenching. Um, I'm going to find the quote and then I'll read it. But basically, he doesn't know if he's abandoning his people by choosing to leave. Yeah, what a hard thing that he he feels like he can't write the story he wants to write about South Africa in South Africa because it's so killing to his being, like this constant uh, pushing down of who he is and that he can't pursue the things he wants to pursue. And so he feels like in order to help South Africa, he has to leave. But then... Is he like abandoning his people? Is he, is mm-hmm. it fair because he has the resources to get out to have his children get an education that isn't controlled by that, but he can't give that to other people? So does he yeah. have the right to take it? It's deep. <laughs> I thought that it was yeah. so, I'm trying to find it. So hang on one second. Um, so he says, I couldn't settle down to my high-powered writing, so that's why he's struggling with his writing. I despaired often about the education of our children under the new system, but I felt I had no right to save them by taking them away instead of fighting it out side-by-side with those whose children are also being brought up in a police state. And yet I felt I needed to build up morale and mental reserves. And so I just feel like... And he goes on, and then he has a whole... There's interludes in this novel, and he kind of has an interlude where he's like figuring that out in his head. And I just, how heart-wrenching of, like, a thought process to have to have. Like, am I being a traitor by leaving, even though it's best what's best for me and my family? Am I being true to myself by making that choice, by saving my children when I can't save others? Like, yeah, I just feel like that's a heart-wrenching choice that probably almost every immigrant has to 100%, make. 100%. And a lot of times, I think, why people immigrate or flee as refugees or asylees is, is for that very reason. You know? And so. Because why else would you choose to live a life of such hardship that immigration is? It's so hard, you know? Yeah. And I just, I wish that as a world population, everybody could have compassion for the hardness behind those decisions. Like yeah. this, that straight up, that sentence almost made me cry when I read it. Cause I was just like, I can't even imagine having to grapple with that because I have such privilege that that is almost 100% something that I will never have to think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just, while I'm so thankful that I will never have to think about something like that, like nobody should have to. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just, that whole sentence really, really like that idea of having to think about Am I being a traitor by saving myself even though I can't save anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good. Um, so that's also another quote that I wanted to read because uh, it's, it talks about communism. We always joke that all, every book is in every book about communism. And so this is a about a white man who helped them, um, helped him get the passport so he could leave. And was really the only reason he got to leave. Yeah. And so 
Uh, he said it after it all that he could appreciate why I felt so bitter that I had been banned from teaching, that the government wasn't really intending to oppress us as we thought, that he himself had served under the United Party government, and that, in fact, he personally was all for black man's progress, and that he was the one who had urged the government to allow Africans to buy European liquor, even in the face of the opposition from his church. And then, quote by that guy, if the last thing I could ever do in my life is to save you from com- communism, I'll do it. So, number one, I feel like the constant bias that of a white person, um, I'm not guilty of racism because I personally have not mm-hmm. racist and not considering the system that you're benefiting from, right? He's personally for black people's yes. progress, but he's participating in a system that's actively, very aggressively, openly <laughs> oppressing black people. Yep. And I love that the justification for that is that if they don't oppress black people, they're going to have a communist revolution. However, that oppression only makes a communist revolution more likely. We saw oh. that happen in a lot of countries. And why were people so this afraid of communism? I, I don't under like, do you think if there hadn't been nuclear weapons after world war two, I mean, when Russia went communist in world war one, we were really freaked out about it. Yeah. But I don't understand why Matt, why, like, why did it really matter us? Like you guys are going to do it that way. We're we'll not, do it this way. We're doing it that way. We're not providing aid. We don't, you know, I, don't, I just like if, if I your feel Western like European people <laughs> and Americans hadn't been so afraid of communism in the 20th century, so much less evil would have happened in the world. I feel you know? like, again, it goes back to Western European and American, like feeling of superiority, like our ways are the only ways and this is what you shall do. Uh, and we don't agree with yours. So we're just going to say you're wrong and be scared of it. Yeah. And I definitely think that. It seems to me, in my understanding of history, every time communism has existed, it has always devolved into just an oppressive dictatorship and that we've never, true communism doesn't seem to actually function because people who have power always abuse it. And it's interesting, though, because it usually evolves because of some sort of, of oppression, yeah. though, too. So, so it's like, yeah, it comes from oppression and then it devolves back into oppression. Yeah. So even though capitalism is not great for many reasons that we don't have to get into, it's not perfect. It also seems like we kind of have proven that communism doesn't work. But if we knew that in 1918, yeah, then why? Then just like, ah, eh, they're gonna screw themselves over. We don't care about the oppression, especially because that's in not 1918, yeah, wars. we were we were so isolationist. Like, why the hell did we? Care? Yeah, and we didn't we didn't fight wars in Vietnam and Korea because we were worried about people getting oppressed because of communism. No, 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 we no, fought no. them for completely human other reasons. rights. We don't fight yeah. things for that. <laughs> we fought those wars nope. as like a power play. Yeah, we're no, the biggest it totally and the best, is. You know? It's so. I thought that was so. Int- I thought about that one too. I was like. So the only reason he escaped his country is because one white man was scared of him becoming a communist. Yeah, it's the craziest thing. Yeah, it's the craziest thing. And I wish that it wasn't still affecting our politics so much. Oh, God. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, um. Oh, I have one other passage. You go oh, ahead. perfect. Go ahead I have one point. thing I wanted to say about okay. this, too. I We've talked about how storytelling narratives are hard sometimes for me, that they're not always my favorite kind of, like, verbal oral storytelling type mm-hmm. narratives but i liked this book and i liked the previous book so the previous book had sections of oh, uh, solitude, solitude. Mm-hmm. had sections where they were more storytelling and it was very much that oral narration and oral history kind of feeling in it yeah. and this book was mostly that this book felt like each chapter was kind of like a snapshot moment in his path through life, a oral history of that. And then it maybe jumped yeah. forward like a year or two, sometimes three or four. Sometimes it just only jumped forward a little bit. Um, but it was very much oral telling snapshots. 
Snapchats. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Snapshots. Um, oh, that's the funniest thing you've ever seen out here. <laughs> but I really liked the way this was done. Yeah. So this is proven to me. I think I feel better about my dislike for uh, Caravans Arai. Mm-hmm. And my dislike for the Comrade Angel because this also was coming of age. Yeah, I do feel like this is in the same vein as Lacoma Angel, but it's much better done. Yeah, yeah. I like. I definitely felt like I feel vindicated in my dislike of those other two novels because I know that I can like this type of thing. It just has to be done well, and I yeah. thought this was done well. This man is obviously a good writer. He obviously knows how to pull a narrative together so that it's it's telling you something yeah. without like beating you over the head with it like Luke Homer Angel with no point yeah. really or without meandering without any point like Caravanserai yeah. and so I really this book made me feel better about myself as a reader <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing that saves this book from being the couple of things that save this book from being Look Homer Angel is that one, it's a straight memoir. He's not dressing it up as fiction so that he can talk shit about everyone he's ever known. Mm-hmm. And so and he does talk about positive and negative characteristics of the people yep. in his life, but it's more honest. It feels more honest. It doesn't feel like the whole book was written to backstab people. They like, don't feel like caricatures of their worst qualities. Yeah. They feel like real people. Yeah. And the second thing being that he I mean, he didn't know it when he was living it, but he's living through a pivotal point in history mm-hmm. right and but the look horn angel is just i just it wasn't it didn't have it doesn't have that same historical presence. you know what it felt like it felt like in look homeward angel he thought he was really important when he actually wasn't yeah and this man eskia thinks that he's just a man living his everyday life but he's actually telling an important narrative and i think there's a very big distinction between those two things yes it's a lot less pretentious and it and and i think that it makes the narrative completely different when someone is just telling you their story that ends up being important whereas when someone thinks they're important so they're telling their narrative to prove that to you yeah okay last thing i want to talk about this book um is that he talks throughout the book about how he was like raised in the church and then eventually he becomes Anglican and uh, and then eventually he kind of feels like he's lost his faith even mm-hmm. though he still turns back to it at certain points um, and in this passage he's kind of talking about um, he's when he decided not to go to church so in 1947 I decided not to go to church anymore the white press the white radio the white parliament the white employers and the white church babbled their platitudes and their lies about Christian trusteeship and the native emerging from primitive barbarism, evangelizing the native white guardianship, secular institutions wrenched the pulpit from the church and cited the scriptures. And the white man saw himself as an internal missionary among non-whites. The church raised an occasional feeble voice of protest. The non-white for years had been taught to love his neighbor, the white man, the non-European preacher, the non-European congregations um, had, who had taken hope in eternal life. Um, and then, yeah, and so it's, like, I just, I have been thinking a lot lately about how the church is complicit in Mm -hmm. a lot of evil in the world, as a person who goes to church, and a lot of evil in the world, and how do we, how do I as a Christian now care about that legacy? Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's tough, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's really heartbreaking, um, that so many times throughout history, white people in the church have used it to oppress other people, uh, like, all the time. It's all in- the time. It's you know? interesting. Um, 
talking about what the church is used to oppress other people because the last sentence in this book is talking about his faith again for the moment i'm content to move on free of this sort of allegiance exposing myself to the impacts of as many ways of life as possible i'm glad that i can at last exercise that right yeah and then i just wonder like someone say someone who's black at south african now or from any other like non-white country then they family has been christian for generations because of white mm-hmm. missionaries um and their faith is real to that you know yeah. for them but ha- what do they think about this you know like i don't know i don't know yeah. in that situation i'm just really curious about it um and, i would and, be and interested it, like, to see yeah. or hear and it bothers me lately i've been having <laughs> i've been slightly annoyed at the church that i go to because mm-hmm. Um, on some issues, I feel like some social issues, I feel like I'm like, yes, like this is the, this is what I believe the church should be doing. This is great. But then sometimes there'll be a sermon that, well, I don't maybe disagree with like the theology, but Mm -hmm. but then I feel like the punchline is basically like Christians don't need to have an opinion about X social issue. And I freaking hate that. Like just because, you know, yeah, we don't have to identify as a Republican or a Democrat because our first identity is in God. Great. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about what's yeah. going on. And um, and it pushes all, that my, would pushes be all my buttons. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm working on reconciling that inside. And this book was really just like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so should we, should we vote? And then give yeah, our yeah, I actually like, I think we're going to agree on this one. Yeah. Do you think it belongs on the list? One two three yes i i really liked this book yes i feel like this a i feel like often we're like we'll put we won't put this book on the list because we hope there'll be another book from Mm -hmm. this region that's better and that definitely happened in this case and stuff for a book and i feel better than michael k (laughs) so much better um and i feel like this book kind of i feel like the books we've read for the podcast lately have either been horrible or okay or you know mm-hmm. and this is the first book we've read in a while where I was like yes there's a reason we're doing this this is very very important for people to read these types of books because it opens your mind it makes you think about stuff yeah and it made me feel like really passionate about the project again and you know? it was great because I would say that a year and a half ago I would have said this book wasn't my cup of tea because of the storytelling element but then as I was reading it I was like I've learned to let go of how sometimes when books are like this, I can't always follow every single thing. I've learned to let go of the way the narration might be different. And so it was really great because I'm glad we read this a year and a half in because I think I was able to appreciate it so much more than I would have if it was one of the mm. first two or three books. Yeah. Um, and it's making me realize how much the other books we've read have really built my ability to have actual opinions and like... Yeah that have evidence behind them yeah. or that have, I mean, even if it's a evidence from my viewpoint, but have some sort of like backing, like I can yeah. say I've read a novel like this, but here's why I like this one better with like real academic language, which I really like. Yeah. So basically we do think that some books are that everyone should read before they die. <laughs> That's what we're saying is that the premise of the podcast is true. There are some books that everyone should read before they die. And in theory, I think we're also saying that even if we're saying it doesn't belong on the list of things everyone should read before they die, it's okay to read bad books too because they yeah. help build your ability to talk about good books. Yeah, that's very true. All right, so we go on to our next segment. Dun, 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 dun. This week, we are going to be doing 
quotes, favorite literary quotes. And Nicole's going to go first this week. And I will give you some of my favorite literary quotes next week. Um, but we just didn't want it to be too many quotes in one session. Yes. So, okay. Nicole, what are some of your favorite literary quotes? How many are you going to give us? I don't know yet. So, first <laughs> I was going to say, um, so I keep my quotes like in a leather-like notebook that I bought at Harry Potter Woo-hoo! Studio Tour in London. I was with her. <laughs> um, that was a ridiculously expensive notebook. But it's but I was like, so I have to put important things in there that I want to keep, you know. And so I started using it and I write like quotes from books um, and also like funny quotes that Chelsea and I and some of our other friends say when we're together <laughs> in here for posterity. And then I, I always just consider like this notebook is like all my most important words, mm-hmm. you know, and I like to read it when I'm feeling discouraged or whatever and so most of the things in here they're not like well-known quotes but they're just things that really stuck with me so let's see here the first one I have some oh yeah this is good so this is a book that I'm probably going to pitch to you that should be on the list eventually the next time we do that it's called The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells by Andrew Sean Greer oh I've heard of this book I haven't read it though so he won the National Book Award this or the Pulitzer Prize Mm -hmm. this year um this was his first book, which when I read the book, the Pulitzer Prize winner, I didn't know that it was the same author. Um, and so this is my favorite quote from it. Uh, Only in brief flashes does it come to us that we may never see someone again. It is an absurd thought. A car crash or a heart attack or a rare disease may take anyone. And the last may be that matinee you sneak together or the tipsy lunch or the silly phone argument that one more meeting would dilute. Equally, the melodramatic moments in hospitals and airports and apartment doorways are no assurance of an ending. They're just the preparation for one. Oh, God. Right. So good. Uh, The other one I wrote down from that book is um, do not dilute yourself in petty days. Mark your hour on the earth. Oh, I like that one, too. Anyways, it's a great book. (laughs) I'm definitely going to use it on a pitch. Pitch it to you. Perfect. Um, Let's see. Mm -hmm. Then I have some quotes from another book called Before Ever After by Samantha Sato, which is, I think, just a book I read really randomly. Um, But it's really, it was had a lot of great, really great. It's also like a time travel book. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is my favorite quote from it. Um, Watches help us pretend we can put time on a strap and wrap it around our wrist that we can cut it into bite bite-sized pieces and save some of it if we get if and save some of it if we get up exactly at half past seven have breakfast on the train at eight and are in the office before the large hand strikes nine sundials are the closest we can come to grasping what time really means the earth turns the sun rises and sets and there's absolutely nothing one can do about it if we accept time for what it is how it flows and how we flow with it i doubt very much we would contrive wasting loads of it by constantly checking our watches where we are now is where a lifetime or a lifetime's worth of steps have taken us. Are we early for this moment? Are we late? Or should we linger as long as we can in the second where we stand? Oh, I love that one too. <laughs> right? So good. Uh, let's see. You're putting mine to shame already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is one from a book called The Book of Speculation by Erica Swiler. Uh, we carry our families like anchors, rooting us in storms, making sure we never drift from where and who we are. We carry our families within us the, the way we carry our breath underwater, keeping us afloat and keeping us alive. Oh, uh, two more, three more. Yes, let's see. Let me flip ahead a few pages. Mm-hmm. I also have my 30 things to do before I turn 30 listen here. 
<laughs> it was important. It needed to go in the yeah. expensive notebook. Yeah. Oh, look, here's a quote from Reasons to Live, a podcast book that I put in here. I have a quote from Reasons to Live on mine, too. I wonder if it's the same one. <laughs> it's the, I wonder how we know what happens to us isn't good. Yeah, yeah. I love that yeah. the, that quote. That's actually, that's the that quote and that, like, concept from that book or why that book is on the list for me yeah for sure Mm -hmm. um and this one's also i believe this was the uh like the quote right before the title page Mm -hmm. in one of the books um i think the one the czech from the czech republic but it's uh but because i think the name is czech vaclav havel only by throwing yourself over and over again into the tumult of the world with the intention of making your voice heard only this only thus will you really become a person (sighs) Love it. Okay, yes. one more. Okay, Give me okay. one more. Oh, so hard to pick. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh, look, and I put one in here from Look Home and Angel, which is crazy. Oh, is it the same? The one from the yeah, like, first? Yeah, the first page. Each yeah. moment is the fruit of 40,000 years. That was a great quote. It, it was, was promising. Quote. It, was so it did promising. not live up to it. So promise. promising. Um, I think I will, this one is from a really recent book called Future Home of the Living God by Louise um, Erdrich. Um, I think we survive because we love beauty and because we find each other beautiful. I think that might be our strongest quality. Oh, I like that one. So there's definitely a strong theme of what I go for (laughs) about the meaning of life and time and and love. And just (laughs) embracing the moment you're in. Yeah, yeah, so... Those are some of my favorites. Looking forward to hearing yours, Chelsea. Yay! Well, you will hear them next week if you tune in. And until then, you should follow us on our social media accounts. We are on... Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at 1001BooksPod. Let's see, at 1001BooksPodcast, or... or Gmail at 1001BooksPodcast at gmail.com. You are always welcome to email us. And until then... We need to read... We need to draw a book to Oh, my gosh! Chelsea. <laughs> Let's Uh-oh. draw our book for next time. Oh, wow, that would have been bad, guys. You <laughs> wouldn't have known. All right. Dun, 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 dun. Book 28 is called The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mysterious title. It's about the mail. You're so literal. <laughs> I know. So literal. And it's never right. <laughs> no. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume it's about, like, missed opportunities, you know? Ooh. You missed the first ring. That's a good one. Rings twice. <laughs> Missed opportunities. I like that. Okay. We shall see. All right. Well, we'll find out next week. Dun dun. dun. Until then, happy, happy reading. reading.